Don't mind me, I'm just going to close these two blinds here because it's like glaring in my eyes up there. Plus, I got an image on the screen I want you to see in just a minute, and it's going to wash it out. That uh, particular, particular song is pretty hard to sing, isn't it, when you stop and really consider what you're saying. Um, I've had a constant companion with me this week um, as I'm working through Hebrews chapter 2 because it's such a hard text. And um, people left after the 9 o'clock service and after the Saturday night service saying, wow, that was not intended to tickle our ears, was it? So if you've read ahead into Hebrews into chapter 2, you know what you're in for, um, especially in the first three verses. And it's it's an admonishment from the writer of Hebrews to those of us um, who, who claim to be Christ followers, who follow God. Um, James 2.13, the reason I say it's, it's been my constant companion over this last week is because it, it reminds me that regardless of how hard God's word can be, mercy triumphs. Mercy wins. And we get to celebrate that in just a little bit with communion, but we're going to work through this first couple verses of Hebrews. We're only gonna, Hebrews chapter 2, we're only going to get into uh, three or four verses this morning so that we have time for communion, but um, I'm, I'm at the point where I recognize I personally desperately need to hear Hebrews, even though there's a great tension with it. And, and the tension keeps me a little bit off balance. The, the tension is intense enough that it, it causes me to say that, here's my problem. I live with um, Mark's value structure, my My world that surrounds me causes me sometimes to look at Scripture through my filter as opposed to allowing God to speak freely. And sometimes I want to recoil a little bit and say, God, you didn't really mean that, did you? Maybe you've been there when you've read some passages of Scripture. Um, Hebrews can do that to you. It can cause that tension to make you recoil a little bit and say, I'm not really sure I understand that, so you've got to bear down and, and spend some time with it. So to do that, I need to pray with you that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher and that um, we'll work through this together. So would you pray with me? Father, we come before you almost with a sense of daunting, especially after the things I just said. Um, it, it can cause us to wonder what's in store. But we know that where, where your mercy reigns supreme, there's grace from you and um, you're faithful to complete the work that you've begun in us. That's what your word promises. So we cling to that knowledge and we come before you asking that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, when Lori and I were younger, actually um, in our 20s and 30s, so just a few years ago, um, what, what are you laughing for? Um, so ju- uh, when we were in our 20s and 30s, we lived in Arizona. And um, occasionally I would have to leave Arizona and come back to Michigan because of doing business on both ends. And when we lived in Arizona, I didn't always fly back. Sometimes I drove back. And occasionally, I wanted to get off the main paths. Um, Highway 10, Highway 40 can just be a zoo. And so coming out of Phoenix, I would go up into what's known as the Salt River Canyon. Now, personally, I really, really like the Salt River Canyon. It's like the Grand Canyon, only most people don't know about it. It's a little bit smaller scale. But here's the cool thing about the Salt River Canyon. I know this picture's a little bit fuzzy, but if you look down in the bottom of the canyon, you not only see a river, but you also see a road, okay? The cool thing about the Salt River Canyon is this road goes all the way through the canyon. Now, if there's a road in the bottom of the canyon, 
it must mean there's a road in the top of the canyon, right? So to get to the bottom of the canyon, you've got to go down canyon walls to get down to the bottom. And, and that's a way out of Phoenix to go off to the northeast. Well, the particular thing about the Salt River Canyon walls and, and the road is that there's no guardrails on that road. And I'm talking seven, eight hundred, nine foot, hundred, nine hundred foot cliffs where you can look straight down. Now, the younger version of Mark liked to drive those roads really, really fast. And um, there were times when my wife was not in the car and I could go as fast as I wanted. And there's times when she was in the car and she'd be reaching over trying to push on the brake, um, just telling me, slow down. Well, there's, there's warning signs on that road saying sharp curves ahead. Uh, 9% grade. If you've been on 9% grade, you know what I'm talking about. So sharp curves, 9% grade, and, and a sense of being invincible makes for very dangerous territory, especially on a road with no guardrails. At one particular time, I'm driving down that road, and I see a glimmer over in the distance, a, a shimmer of metal. And it's on the opposite side of the canyon wall where road is going back up again. So I'm thinking, wonder what that could be. When I get to the other side of the canyon, I pull my car off to the side and I look down one of those 700-foot cliffs and I see a car laying at the bottom of the ravine. Somebody else thought they were invincible and took those curves too fast and went literally off and crashed. When you live life without guardrails and without rules, you can find yourself in really dangerous territory. And that's what Hebrews 2 is kind of like. It's the, actually, in the first three verses, it's the first of five major warnings in the book of Hebrews. And, and the warnings are both to believers and to non-believers, people who are in the church and just kind of investigating things and those who are in the church and totally own it and, and belong to it. So the admonitions that we find in the book of Hebrews become stronger and stronger. By the time you get to Hebrews chapter 12, it gets into the most severe warnings. So let's start where, we're, um, where we left off last week. If you missed the first two weeks of Hebrews, here's what we've established. That Jesus is God, and so Jesus, therefore, is, is worthy of worship. He's worthy of the worship of the angels, and so he receives worship. Jesus is better because of his eternal position, and Jesus is better because of the work that he accomplished. So we have all this information, but here's the danger. We can know the truth that we've learned in the last two weeks all the things that we've learned about Jesus, yet what happens if we fail to act on what we know? That's what the writer is going to ask us. So go with me to verse 1 in Hebrews chapter 2. You'll see some of it on the screen, and as well, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, that would be helpful for you. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1 says this, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So this therefore, that very first word, is based on the previous argument. Everything that we learned in chapter 1, he's saying as a result of all these things that Jesus is better and he delivers a better promise, what he's doing is he's forcing you to think back over all the things that you learned about Jesus, that he's preeminent, that he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, that he made purification of sins, that he was there at the beginning, that he created all things, and that he's coming again one day the everlasting God in blazing glory. That's who Jesus is. That's what the therefore means. As a result of that, who could possibly reject him? Because to reject him is to reject God. So therefore requires a response because truth always demands a response, doesn't it? And so we've got truth here and it demands a response. Since the Son is so supremely great and he's coming one day in blazing glory on the clouds of heaven, he says in verse 1, you got to pay much closer attention. 
So I kind of bear down on that word much this week and was looking at it. You're going to find five Greek words in your notes this morning, and you'll see them each up on the screen. But these are words that are really important to this text to help you understand what this writer was saying. This first word, when he used the word much closer attention, is this word parisos, and it means super abundantly. So if the writer was speaking to us today, he, he would say, we've got to pay super abundant attention to these things that we've heard unless we drift away. Now, that's what he says in verse 1, lest we drift away. I, I wonder this morning, do you know someone in your life who you would consider to have been at one point in their life a really strong follower of Jesus Christ, and they drifted away? Or do you know some individuals who are not there yet? They haven't committed their life to Christ. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe, maybe you're not a believer in Jesus yet, and you find yourself hearing this information, but willing to go on past. Well, it's very interesting that you would be here this morning in order to hear this because this concept of drift away has a very specific meaning in the Greek world of which this text was written. Another Greek word on the screen, pareo. And this word drift is this word pareo, and it was used of something slipping on past. Now, in some cases, it was used of a ring that would slip off from a finger. But more commonly, in the culture that they lived in, it was used of sailors. Because the economy that Jesus lived in at that period of time was very much a fish economy, people set out to sea on the Sea of Galilee, or they set out to sea in the Mediterranean Sea, and the first century fishing economy kind of dominated the Middle East. This word pareo really applied to them. Here's why. Because it was used of ships as they would come back into port... And as they were approaching port, if the sailors on board the ship did not adequately or properly gauge the winds or the tides, they could be found drifting on past the harbor and totally miss the mark of what they were going for because they were careless and didn't pay enough attention. So the image that you have here, and this is a graphic illustration, is not a stupid sailor. It's not an ignorant sailor. It's a careless one because he took this issue carelessly. He wasn't serious about his work. Now, here's the truth. In the church, most people do not deliberately, in a moment, decide, I'm going to turn my back on God and just decide to walk away. Rather, it, help, it happens really slowly, doesn't it? It's, it's almost imperceptible. And they slip past the harbor as a result of a series of very small, poor decisions and find themselves drifting away from God. Poor decisions, according to the Bible, in spiritual matters, have really severe consequences, sometimes fatal consequences. So the Bible tells us that the severe consequences for regarding God can look like this. Here's a couple illustrations for you. Old Testament. There's a man by the name of Uzzah. I don't know if you'd want to be saddled with that name, but it was spelled U-Z-Z-A-H. And Uzzah was a guy who lived at the time of the Ark of the Covenant, Uh, Think Indiana Jones, okay? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Ark of the Covenant was the thing that was made of pure gold that God had told Moses to put the Ten Commandments inside and to put the rod of Aaron inside. And so they've got the the laws inside the Ark of the Covenant. God gave them rules about how they were supposed to handle the Ark, how they are supposed to carry it and transport it. So fast forward to the time of Uzzah, and the Ark is being carried in a wagon, And some ox are pulling it. And Uzzah is walking alongside it. And the ox stumble. And as the ox stumble, 
the cart begins to tip, and Uzzah thinks the Ark of the Covenant is going to fall out. So Uzzah reaches up, puts his hands out to stop the Ark in his mind. God smacks him dead because God's rules were very, very clear. You do not touch the Ark of the Covenant. You do not come in contact with it. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? Think of the men of Beth Shemesh, other Israelites who were handling the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark came into their village and they thought, well, nobody's looking. How about if we look inside this thing? They wanted to see the Ten Commandments. Now God said, don't look inside it. Don't even touch it. But they decided they wanted to see the Ten Commandments that Moses put in there. So what do they do? They take the lid off from the ark. God smacks them dead. So individuals who committed an egregious action had really severe consequences. Why? Because they'd been told clearly how to handle the ark and how not to handle the ark. See, here's my point. You don't need to be violently opposed to the things of God to suffer loss. You can know what the things of God are, even consider yourself a follower of God, but suffer some of the consequences when you disobey God. And here's what I want you to note before we move on to this next verse. It's not the gospel that drifts. It's man that drifts. Negligent people drift away. The word will never drift. We're told that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. So the danger is that we could drift away from his word. Let's move on to verse 2, and we'll expand on this a little bit further. Verse 2 says this, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. That's kind of a complicated sentence, isn't it? Let's break it down a little bit. You might have missed last week, and you could be as a result asking, what's the message? What's the message communicated by angels? I see that in verse 2. What did they declare? Maybe your mind's going immediately to Christmas, and you're thinking of the angels showing up and telling the shepherds what to do. That's not what he's talking about right here. This message declared by angels is very specifically the Old Testament of the Bible. In other words, the law, the Levitical law. As we discovered last week in some of our research, that when God communicated the law, Thou shalt not kill, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery. All those laws, the Levitical laws, when he gave them to Moses to put down, he gave them through angels. And so the writer is saying, this message declared by angels, the message is the Old Testament law. Here's a couple of examples for you from Scripture to help you understand this. The first one comes from Deuteronomy 33.2. The Lord came from Sinai, meaning Mount Sinai. He came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning. That's, that's an Old Testament reference to the law being given through angels. Here's a New Testament reference, and specifically through one angel. This is the one, Moses it's speaking of, who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai. So the, the writer uses in verse 2 a, a, a first-class Greek word. It's a, called a, a first-class Greek condition when he uses the word since. Since the word declared by the angels. So here's what since means. It, it literally is saying it's a reality. It proves absolute. In other words, if you broke the law, the law would break you. There was no out. There was no mercy. The punishment of God was certain, and it was swift, so verse 2 goes on to say, every disobedience received a just retribution, and the punishment was fair. 
Here's why. Because God gave very, very clear rules to the children of Israel. So as a result, there were very, very clear consequences. You don't do this, you don't do this, and you do do this. And if you do do what I told you not to do, there will be consequences. So let me bear down for just a moment on two words that are there, uh, sin words. One is called transgression, and one is called disobedience. It's in your, in your notes this morning, but it, it's in your Bible as well. Transgression and disobedience. Here's what transgression is. A transgression is when someone draws a line, a very, very clear line, and the person who's been told not to cross that line disobediently, willingly says, I crossed the line, so what? What are you going to do about it? Okay, that's a transgression. A very, very clear law, and someone willingly breaks it, so they're stepping across the line. That's called um, a sin of commission. It's an overt action. Okay, the other word that's used is disobedience. And that has the thought of imperfect hearing. And I don't mean someone who's deaf, but rather someone who hears what they're supposed to do, knows it clearly, and as a result of the sin of omission, kind of ignores it. I'm going to give you a couple of biblical examples of omission and commission. This first one, the sin of commission, it comes from Leviticus 24:14. I don't know if you've ever spent time in the book of Leviticus, but if you ever can't sleep one night, open up the book of Leviticus. It'll help you. It's better than any sleep aid that I know of. But it's full of laws, okay? But the book of Leviticus is very clear about how God handled people who were the children of Israel in the Old Testament. Look with me at Leviticus 24:14. God speaking. Bring the one who has cursed outside the camp and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Then let all the congregation stone him. And you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, then he shall bear his sins. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Severe, right? Severe. You tracking with me? Sounds pretty harsh. Absolutely. God made sure the sin was dealt with directly and immediately. Why? Because he wanted to maintain purity in the camp. So that's the sin of commission. What about the sin of omission? So this one's not going to be on the screen, but what we have is a guy in the book of Numbers, we're told, who on the Sabbath day, the day of rest, big deal to the Jewish people, a guy who on Sunday or Sabbath day, for them was Saturday, Shabbat, he decides to go out and gather firewood. And he wants to just get a head start on everybody else. So he's out picking up firewood. He needs firewood for his campfire. He's gathering it, and he brings it back. And one of the other people who are the children of Israel see him doing that. And they say, hey, wait. God's word says you're not supposed to be working on the Sabbath. What are we going to do with him? Well, they consulted God's word, and God's word was very clear. Don't work on the Sabbath. If anybody profanes the Sabbath, they're supposed to be killed. So they killed the guy. See, the law was strong. There's absolutely no mercy. And when you fast forward to the New Testament, the Hebrews who received the letter of Hebrews understood this. They understood there was no mercy whatsoever under the law. James 2.10 says this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. They're looking back and they're saying, That law was really harsh. Really severe. Now, if, if you've got your Bible open still, you might want to circle this word just before we move on to verse 3 because it says they received a just retribution. This, this word just is something that should raise a flag for you. 
because in our culture today, God is regularly considered to be unjust. People hear stories of the Old Testament and would say, what, they killed a guy for picking up firewood? I mean, what kind of a God is that? Or, or they stoned a guy because he took God's name in vain, because he slipped with his tongue? What kind of a God does that? It, it seems that the proportion is unjust to the wrong that was committed. I want you to understand a biblical truth. God's, by his very nature, cannot be unjust. It's not possible. So punishment that you see distributed in the Old Testament is always related to light or to the knowledge that you have, to the information available. So the more light, the more severe the punishment. Jesus is really clear about this when he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and he compares it to the city of Capernaum. Now Jesus lived in the city of Capernaum and he did most of his miracles there. Look what he had to say about the city of Capernaum. It says this in Matthew eleven twenty. Then he, meaning Jesus, began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Jesus speaking, you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Harsh. Why? Because Capernaum not only had the Old Testament law and the information of who God was in the Old Testament, they had Jesus in their midst, the very Son of God. And Jesus is saying, as bad as Sodom was, and it was bad, Capernaum is worse. Here's the principle. The more you know, the more light that you have, the greater punishment for ignoring what you know. And so the judgment on Israel was severe because of how they handled God. By the time we get to Hebrews chapter 10, this truth is really amped up. Let me show you an example of it. Hebrews 10, 28. Whoever, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? See, a person who knows and who drifts on past will experience the severest punishment It's like living life without guardrails going down a canyon wall, just totally ignoring all the warning signs. So the Hebrews who received this letter, the Hebrews, they knew the authority of the Old Testament law. And and they are hearing that Jesus is the Son of God. And so if they ignore Jesus, who is perfect, how unthinkable to ignore his messages. How dangerous is that to turn away from him? That's why he goes on to verse 3 and he asks this huge question. Part A, I just broke it down into two halves for you. 3A, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So the writer at this point is kind of like my wife in the passenger seat tapping on the brake saying, slow down, Mark. Well, the writer is saying, what are you doing? Live with this. Feel this tension. What will you do if you neglect this great salvation that you've been offered? Well, who's the we in there, church? How shall we escape if we neglect this great salvation? Well, we would be those ones with this privileged position who hear this good news. Now, remember the historical context that we've talked about so far. The people who are receiving this letter are the church. They're receiving it from this writer of Hebrews, and he's writing to a church known as the Hebrews who have left Judaism, and they're... Understanding who Jesus is is growing in their mind. 
And he's trying to admonish them not to return to the things that they knew because Jesus is better. But as with any church, and as is true here at New Hope, there are those who are not necessarily believers in Christ yet who are part of a church like this Church of the Hebrews. So you've got believers and non-believers in this setting. I think this writer is writing to both. That's his audience. You've got those who are investigating and who are yet uncommitted. And like any church, you've got the believers who are committed. So you're looking at this passage and you're saying, escape what? How shall we escape if we neglect something? Well, if he's talking to believers and non-believers, I think he's talking both about punishment or discipline and wrath, the wrath of God. Now, we know there's always consequences for things that we ignore, right? We know there's always consequences for the things that we ignore, right? Okay, just try driving 75 and a 55. You'll get away with it for a little while, but eventually you'll get caught. Ignore the advice your physician gives you. See what happens. Try driving down the side of a canyon without any guardrails, totally paying no attention to the speed limit. See what happens. See, there's consequences for the things that we ignore. So let's look at this word neglect, amaleo. It's in your notes. You'll see it on the screen. This word neglect that this writer uses, he says, to be careless of or to make light of. And that's why I asked that question. Do you know people in your life, maybe you have to examine yourself this morning and say, am I a person who's making light of this great salvation? See, this warning is really clearly directed to those who are the intellectually convinced, people who know the truth but fail to act on it. I don't personally, just my own take, I don't believe that this is being written to those who have never heard the word because it's, you can't be negligent of something you don't know anything about, right? It's not possible. You can't neglect something you've never heard of. So I think he's writing to both groups. The, the specific group here is believers and non-believers. Well, how does this apply to believers? My take on this is believers can live on this earth under the hand of God's discipline when we're disobedient to him. And we can feel that sense of his heavy hand of discipline on us. However, what I understand is it's true followers of Jesus. While we can be in danger of disobedience to God, we cannot be in danger of being negligent of salvation. Because by the very nature, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, that means you've paid attention to it. You're not neglecting it. It belongs to you. And just so you know, I'm a person who believes in the security of the believer, that you can't lose your salvation. But you can certainly be neglectful of it. And what do we neglect? We neglect obedience. We can neglect growth. We can neglect discipline in our life. You might say, what does that look like, Mark? How is that possible? Well, let me share a quote with you first from Kent Hughes. He's a, a theologian. I've, I've told you I wanted to share some quotes with you. Here's one. That church's experience 2,000 years ago intersects our lives in this way. Drifting is the besetting sin of our day. And as the metaf metaphor suggests, it is not so much intentional as from unconcern. Christians neglect their anchor, Christ, and begin to quietly drift away. There is no friction, no dramatic sense of departure, but when the winds of trouble come, the things of Christ are left far behind, even out of sight. Here's the danger, church. Christians can go, grow really cold in our commitment to him. And you might say, how is that possible? I don't know if you've ever experienced that in your life, where you've grown cold in your walk with Jesus. I have. I personally have been there, so if you've experienced it, it's not uncommon. 
And, and it comes in waves. And at times you find yourself having drifted away and thinking, how did I get out here? And wanting to get back to the harbor to be reeled back in again. Well, how does that happen? By neglecting God's word. By not spending time in his word and hearing what he has to say to us. Here's another way it happens. By disassociating yourself from church life. Because Jesus gave us the church as his institution to say, this is about you guys sharpening each other, doing life together, being committed to a kingdom purpose. So we begin to neglect his word and neglect the church, and we can find ourselves drifting from his word. And by that very type of neglect, we can put ourselves in danger. Now, I don't want you to think in danger of losing your salvation. That's not what I'm talking about. Let me give you an example. Let's use King David. King David, king of Israel, God's anointed, chosen leader. And God says, he's after my own heart. I really love this guy. But David spies a woman across the city whom he really wants for his own. And he finds out she's married. So he decides, I want that girl, but I can't have her because she's married to somebody else. So what does he do? He arranges, because he's the king, for her husband to be sent out to the front lines in order that he would be killed in battle. His name was Uriah. In, in essence, David committed murder so that he could commit adultery. See, the wickedness of man's heart, the possibility of what we can do, yet you would never think that David would be separated from God's kingdom eternally because we see that he really lived his life out well. And we would say that was a guy who was really after God's own heart, but yet, man, did he stumble and fall seriously. If that one's not pertinent enough for you, let me use Moses. Moses, who led the children of Israel, stands on the borderline of the promised land, and God says, Moses, you know what? You're not going in there. And you're not going in there because of your disobedience to me. Moses had stolen God's glory for himself and attributed some things to himself that really belonged to God. And as a result, he suffered earthly consequences for his bad decisions, he treated God lightly. Now, you would never say that Moses doesn't get eternal life because we see Moses standing with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So you'd have to say, well, he's in the eternal kingdom, but man, did he suffer some consequences. After all he put up with, he didn't get to go into the promised land. See, so I'm not talking about losing your salvation, but I'm talking about putting yourself in danger when you ignore the things of God and suffering the consequences of it. So that's how this speaks to believers. What about non-believers? Well, I, I will tell you the truth. Non-believers, in my opinion, bear the heaviest weight of this because they pay the ultimate consequence. I have known people, and I know people today, who have heard the word of salvation. They know the truth of it, but they would say, I'm not willing to go there. I'm not committed. I'm just, no, I'm not interested. And they find themselves drifting on past. What happens ultimately at the end of this life? Well, the consequences for ignoring God at the end of life, we're told is hell. And you ignore God long enough and you're going to find that your life is over. And hell, I'm here to tell you this morning, is very, very, very real. It's the place of outer darkness, Scripture says. It's this place of blackness and gnashing of teeth. And I want you to notice disaster is brought on by one thing, by being negligent. So you don't have to live in utter disobedience just by neglecting these things that have been offered to you. It's not necessary just to disobey. If, if for me, for instance, let's apply this to Mark's life. If at age 14, when a friend who came to me explained the way of salvation to me, 
If, if I heard that and said, yeah, you know, that's great. I, I totally get that. I'm good, though. I don't need it. If I just neglected it and went on my way and never paid any attention to it whatsoever, I'd have to suffer the consequences. I'd still be in my sin. So that's part 3A. Let's go to part 3B. And here's how he begins to wrap it up. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Now, that should make you pause, and if you got your Bible open, you might want to circle that this morning. It was declared at first by the Lord. When I consider who it is that brought us this offer, I stand in awe, church. I stand in awe because God used the angels to deliver the Old Testament law. But God himself came and presented this offer of salvation to us. And so I cannot entertain a moment of doubt of its truth. Here's the way that Charles Simeon said it. This comes from 1827. Oh, that we were duly mindful of the authority and veracity of him who has revealed it to us. We should not then dare to slight it, nor should we hesitate to rest in it with most implicit confidence. I love the way they talk. And if you talk like that, I'll I'll hang around you because I'd like to learn to talk like that. It's just a beautiful, expressive way of saying, you got to own it. So it was attested first by the Lord himself. And then we're told in in verse 3, it was attested to us by those who heard. Well, who's that? Those who heard are the disciples. They personally heard this information, and God spoke through them. Uh, Let's see that John himself in 1 John 1.1 said, you know what? I saw this with my own eyes. I touched it with my own hands. Look on the screen, 1 John 1, 1. From the beginning we have heard what we have seen with our, with our eyes and what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And so as a result of them being the original 11, God brought witness through them and he gave them an ability to do things that Jesus did, signs and wonders and miracles. And those works that they did revealed the truth of God's word. Dr. Wolverd sums it up this way. He said this, the mighty works that they did prove something about the gospel because they are not of human origin and thus show that the gospel they attest is not human either. Now, Jesus brought it first. Then it came through the disciples who heard it and saw it and touched it and they spread it abroad. And then we're told here in verse four, this is the last one, God himself also brought witness. If you want to circle something in your Bible this morning, I'd circle that also. God bore witness. And how did he do it? Through signs and wonders and various miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So God himself, Jesus first, then the disciples, and then God confirmed he's gone on record that he did through the signs and the wonders. So get this down, Jesus, then the disciples, and even more importantly, it's confirmed by God himself. So if you're thinking this morning of neglecting the great salvation that's been offered to you, I have three great reasons not to neglect it. Let me show you on the screen, but it's also in your notes this morning. Here's the first one, the character of Christ. This one who we know has ascended to the right hand of God, who's made purification of sins, who's returning in power and glory one day. The character of Christ. Here's the second one, the certainty of the consequences and the judgment to not neglect what's been offered to you. Here's the third one, the confirmation of God himself, that God put it out there and said, I'm going on record. This is real. See, it's not just enough for us to hear this, though. That's only the beginning. You took notes this morning. You wrote them in your Bible. You're hearing this. That's not enough. 
you got to act on it. you got to do something with the information that's been given to you. Because these people who lived in the first century, at the time Hebrews was written, many of them heard it. Many of them listened, and apparently they were fascinated by it. So they heard it, but just like today in 2014, some of them failed to make it part of their lives and never acted on it. So I close with this illustration this morning. I came across this this last couple of weeks. Um, Sir William Edward Perry, when he was exploring the Arctic regions, the Arctic Circle, was looking for the North Pole. This goes up back to 1829. He set out with a sailing crew, headed off for the Arctic Circle. They got as far as they could until they hit ice flows, and his men who were on the crew on the ship with him were skilled navigators, and they said to him, you know, it's not enough to stop here. Let's go further. Let's go find the North Pole itself. So Sir William Edward Perry decided with his guys, okay, I'm in for it. Let's go. So they get off the boat. They step onto an ice floe. They take all their gear, strap it to their backs, and they walk hour after hour after hour after hour, day after day after day, and they become exhausted because they don't get to their destination. Why? Well, they stop. They get their charts out again. They, they get their compasses. They begin measuring the stars, and they find of the greatest surprise to them that they're further south than they were when they started because they stepped on an ice floe that was flowing out into the ocean south faster than they were walking north. In other words, they had miscalculated and they were allowed to drift on by. Here's how that might apply to you this morning if you're thinking just being at church saves you. If you're thinking religiosity does it alone, or the fact that you own a Bible, or maybe you're married to a Christian, so you're good, that's not what the Bible says. My Bible says, by faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what you're required to do. Put your life in Jesus' hands. My Bible also says in 1 John 1, 9, that if you are faithful to confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins And that's not the end, is it, church? And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're coming in here this morning and you're feeling like, wow, I have drifted away. I've wandered. Whether you're a believer or a non-believer, you find yourself drifted away to the point where you're thinking, maybe maybe I'm so far out, God won't hear me. I'm I'm telling you, 1 John 1, 9 says he will. And you will confess your sins. He owns you. And he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So if you're not a believer in Jesus this morning and you want to make that the case that you are a believer in Jesus and you want to own it, I'm telling you, this is your moment. What are you waiting for? Don't hesitate. And if you want to talk to me after the services, I'd be honored to do that with you. Or you can pray right in the seat where you're at this morning and just ask Jesus to come into your heart and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But we can talk more about that after the service if you'd like. For those who are the believers in Jesus Christ this morning, we get to celebrate communion right now. We get to celebrate mercy that triumphs over judgment because it's real in our life. So let me read for you from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 11. This is what Paul tells us about communion. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. After hearing what you just heard in Hebrews, you can understand why Paul gave such a strong warning to the church at Corinth in verse 27 when he said, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So here at New Hope, first of all, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to participate in communion this morning. It's, it's not a membership-only thing, okay? But what we do allow for is time for you to talk to your Heavenly Father about where you're at in your walk. You'll find tables in the back and up in the balcony and up here in the front, and in a moment, there'll be individuals standing at those tables who will say to you as you walk up to the table, this is the body and the blood of Christ, just to remind you of what you're picking up. If you'll take that element back to your seat and just hold on to it, I'll lead you through the rest. But what I'd encourage you to do is take this moment. Talk to your Heavenly Father about where you're at in your walk. This is for you. 